Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Dan Ambiner here. Thanks again for joining us for the Braunwald Chronicles as we learn about pivotal moments in the history of cardiology from the legendary Dr. Eugene Braunwald. In the last episode, we covered Chapter 4, where we learned about the discovery of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Now, join us for Chapter 5, where Dr. Braunwald shares one of the most incredible stories I have ever heard, a story about carotid sinus stimulation that led to the revolutionary discovery of the open artery hypothesis with the goal of limiting infarct size. This is literally the cornerstone of STEMI treatment today. This is one of the greatest stories of all time. I cannot wait for you to hear it. Friends, as we take in this incredible series, please do remember that CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with a goal to democratize cardiovascular education. You can support the mission by subscribing to and rating the show, donating via Patreon, getting CardioNerds swag on Teespring, and sharing your love for cardiology on social media. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Dr. Braunwald, looking back at your time at the NIH overall, you know, you described that your time there so vividly, the excitement and, you know, the energy in the walls is is palpable, the way you tell your stories of your time there. What would you say are the most valuable lessons that you learned? And how did that influence your future positions? So it's now it's 1967. And I'm a visiting professor at the University of Rochester, School of Medicine, not the Mayo Clinic, Rochester. And um, I'm there for three days, making rounds, meeting with the fellows, blah, 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 the usual. And I go to get a cab. Now, listen to how strange this is. I go to get a taxi. There's a lot of rain. I have to wait a long time for a taxi. And there's a fellow about my age, I'm like 37, 38 now, I'm getting to be a real person. And um, a guy about my age, and he introduces himself that he is a in the Department of Surgery. His name is uh, Schwartz. And he said, I have discovered a way uh, to treat hypertension and cure hypertension. He said, you've got to wait for a cab. Uh, would you like to see my laboratory? I said, sure. And he said, it's right just below us in the basement. He takes me to the basement and dog lab and dogs that are awake and they're, you know, they, a uh, stranger comes in and they're barking like crazy. And I said, well, how have you cured hypertension? He said, well, I have a, a stimulator on the carotid sinus nerves. Stimulating carotid sinus nerves. Well, we have been studying the carotid sinuses in a physiologic way. I mean, you know, we were interested in the carotid sinus uh, affecting the venous system. We had made some minor discoveries there. So, obviously, carotid sinus nerve stimulation electrically with a pacemaker uh, is going to lower the blood pressure. And he said that's the uh, treatment. And I thanked him. Um, flying back 
to Washington. And I'm thinking we have, now we know about the determinants of myocardial oxygen consumption. We go back to 1955 and Stanley's off. So pressure, development, frequency of contraction, and contractility. What happens when you stimulate the carotid sinuses? You reduce myocardial oxygen consumption. Reduce myocardial oxygen consumption. You should be able to cure or abolish angina. So I come home. Nina, at this point, is working for Glenn Morrow. She's actually become deputy chief of cardiac surgery, the first woman cardiac surgeon in the world in history. And I said at dinner, I said, Nina, what would you think about putting a pacemaker to simulate the carotid sinus nerves? She said, well, it should be a piece of cake. You know, surgeons, they, uh, they're always certain and sometimes correct, but not always. And uh, anyway, I said, well, I said, this would be an interesting thing. And I said, you know, uh, it would be nice. Maybe we could do this together. We had published together, but not a great deal. Anyway, she went to the autopsy room and learned how to dissect out the carotid sinus nerves. And then she did a bunch of dogs, just like this fellow Schwartz had done. And she said, we're ready to go. And, and it worked. And we put this in. We had a pacemaker with an on and off switch so the patient could stimulate his carotid sinus nerves. And uh, we put people with angina on the treadmill. Uh, they got angina. We were measuring arterial pressure. They pressed the button. The pressure went down. The heart rate went down. The angina disappeared. Put this in. Pressed the off button. The thing came back. It worked. We published this in the New England Journal of Medicine. The company that made this particular pacemaker that we're using is a brand new company. It was called Medtronic. And so in 68, we're working on this. And we're going to do a uh, clinical trial with that. Uh, we're all set to do a clinical trial. Uh, we're at UC San Diego, which is where we went to after the NIH, where I'm chairman of medicine. And uh, Favolaro writes this paper about cabbage. And we look at each other and say, it's the direct way to treat angina. This is not, this is going to be too cumbersome. It's never going to go. And we agree not to do this. Uh, but now, we had one patient at the NIH. We told our patients who had this device, this pacemaker, that they could start. If your pain is prolonged or if it's severe, turn it off. Because we were concerned that if they were having an MI and they dropped their blood pressure, that's not going to be helpful. We want to drop the blood pressure in somebody who's exercising with angina, but not somebody. So this gentleman comes in. He's having an interior MI, and he's got the stimulator on. And he's in our little coronary care unit, which was at that time pretty small at the NIH. And um, uh, I said, well, you better turn it off. And uh, the team is working him up and everything is going well. I come back and see him. 
because he was one of the patients who was special to me because we had implanted this pacemaker. And the pacemaker is on again. And I said, please turn it off. So this is repeated twice. And the third time, I take the pacemaker away from him so that he can't do it. Because that wasn't the right thing, you know? I mean, the external control. Uh, I said, I'm going to take this, Mr. Cheney, because it's, you know, I, I really don't want you to have it. Okay. He uh, does fine. And that evening, going over the chart and going over his ECGs, and I learn and I see that the SD segments go up and down. There are times when the SD segment is elevated by two millimeters, and there are other times when the SD segment is isoelectric. What is going on here? Work back the time. It seems that when the stimulator is on, it's isoelectric. When the stimulator is off, the ST segments go up. Okay. So what this meant to me was having an MI is not like pulling a switch. Not like you're turning the lights out. MI can be stuttering. It can take a number of hours. So this gives me an idea. Maybe we can modify infarct size. I told you this was 67. At 68, we leave. But before leaving, I write an NIH grant. Now, you know, I'm on the payroll of the NIH, but now I am on the payroll of UCSD, and I need an NIH grant on this subject to study this in dogs. And I get the grant, and we're working on it. And we find in the paper that uh, was published in Circulation in 1971, which is the paper of which I am most proud, that we were able to modify infarct size in dogs. And we measured infarct size in a number of ways, especially release of CK and residual CK and B in the tissue. And it was a study that took several years and maybe a hundred experiments. And we said it in the last paragraph of the paper that if it were possible to open the vessel within a few hours, it would be possible to reduce infarct size in patients. But at that time, 1971, there was no way to do that. The way to do that came in 1975 when Eugene Chazov, a famous Soviet cardiologist and uh, cardiologist to the Kremlin, injected streptokinase into the um, right coronary artery of a patient that had a total blockade, and it opened up beautifully. So that was the first thrombolytic. And then uh, when we learned about this, I mean, other people got in on the act very rapidly. Everybody said, boy, you can, you, you know, if you can get rid of the thrombus, that must be good. I said, yes, because you've got to reduce infarct size. We had to prove that you could reduce infarct size, and we did that. We set it up at the Brigham, and we were doing uh, streptokinase injections into the coronaries, not intravenous yet. But we were able to show 
uh, using uh, thallium-201 uptake that ischemic tissue was salvaged. And that then led me back to the clinic. And then we started to study this in patients, and I convinced the NIH to uh, set up a study group to look at thrombolysis. This is before PTCA came along. And um, we set up something called TIMI, thrombolysis and myocardial function. And we uh, have continued doing TIMI. We're not in the process of starting TIMI 71. Dr. Brunwald, that is amazing. The notion that you can limit infarct size by opening a vessel is the foundation of my entire chosen career path for interventional cardiology. Yeah. And well, if you look at that paper in 1971, look at the last paragraph. Seriously. The first author of this paper is Morocco. And, and look at the, um, uh, especially the last paragraph, because we said, this is what you could do. Because that was the goal. I mean, that w- that's what we put into the grant application. But we didn't know how to do it. That had, you know, that came along later. That's incredible. You know, these, these discoveries are so profound. They alter the trajectory of how we practice cardiovascular medicine and science. And if I just may make an observation, talking about being at the right place, right time, right people, you clearly had you know, these incredible figures in your life, Dr. Sarnoff, Dr. Axelrod, Dr. Morrow. But there's also these you know, hidden figures, your, your wife, whose career you wanted to prioritize, and so you didn't do the draft. And of course, Dr. Nina Bernwald became uh, an incredible figure in her own right, but also your mother, who clearly had a very incredible impact on you with encouragement yeah. and chicken soup. So, um, you know, it's just, you had a lot of support around you as well. Yeah. But you know, the other thing is, you know, if it hadn't rained that day and the taxi had picked me up, you talk about how the things that affect life, but you know, there are bad things also. I mean, you know, a truck comes along and skirts and for, for some reason and take, takes kids leg off and, you know, hard. I mean, accidents happen. This was an accident. It was an accident that he, that I saw these dogs, and that gave me the idea. And it was an accident that one of our patients who had this thing had an MI, and that I was able to, by accident, show that when you take it on and off, it switches the ST segments. And then said, "Oh my God, this is not like opening and closing the light." in the room with a, with a light switch. That's amazing. Um, this is like a real stat. Speaking of your work with the dogs, I'd like to take you back to 1968 when you took a position at the University of California, San Diego, my medical school alma mater, as oh, the first... That, really? Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, they, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that was incredible. I was just so blown away by this concept of being able to limit infarct size. And Dr. Brunwell clearly saw that and noticed that. And he followed up after this recording with an email. Dear Amit, I enjoyed the interview. Many thanks. Attached is my favorite paper. Please note the very last paragraph. Please share with your colleagues. Sincerely yours, Eugene Brunwald. So colleagues, I'd like to take this moment to share the very last paragraph of Dr. Brunwald's favorite paper. It's titled, Factors Influencing Infarct Size Following Experimental Coronary Artery Occlusions, published in Circulation 
in January 1971, several years prior to the first angioplasty performed by Dr. Andres Grunzik. And I quote, of greatest interest from the clinical point of view is the finding that the severity and extent of myocardial ischemic injury resulting from coronary occlusion could be radically altered not only by pretreatment of the animal, but also by an appropriate intervention as late as three hours after the coronary occlusion. This suggests that measures designed for reduction of myocardial oxygen demands and improvement of coronary perfusion, when effected promptly after a patient has been brought to a hospital, might potentially reduce the ultimate size of the infarction. Again, folks, this was 1971. Truly prophetic. Thank you so much for joining us for the Brunwald Chronicles. Stay tuned for the final chapter, Chapter 6, Triple Threats, Randomized Control Trials, Textbooks, and Digital Education. Beep.